Hello everyone and welcome to New Books and Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host Ricarda and in this podcast I'm talking to Melissa McGormick about her book The Tale of Genji, A Visual Companion. This was published by Princeton University Press in 2018 and it's a really beautifully produced book and lavishly illustrated and Melissa has succeeded in my view in creating a facsimile of sorts of the Harvard Art Museum's Genji album, the oldest dated complete set of Genji illustrations known to exist. It was finished in 1510 by the painter Tosa Mitsunobu and six calligraphers, and so the visual companion is the very first publication to reproduce the album in its entirety and also to introduce each chapter of the tale um, as well. In this podcast, Melissa and I will be talking about the production and the commission of the album and its visual and aesthetic agenda, as well as the materials and techniques applied, and crucially, how to decode the visually loaded images of the paintings. So do get ready for an exciting hour ahead. And thank you once again so much for listening to the New Books Networks and for subscribing to the podcast. I hope you enjoy this one. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Hi, Ricardo. Thank you so much for having me. Mm, Thank you for joining me today. Now, before we delve into the world of Genji, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, I'd be happy to. I teach Japanese art history at Harvard University, where I've taught since 2005. Before that, I taught at Columbia University from the year 2000, which was the year that I received my PhD in the history of Japanese art from Princeton University. At Harvard, I teach a range of courses um, from the introduction to Japanese art, from the prehistoric period to contemporary Japanese art, um, to various seminars, um, like a seminar on gender in Japanese art, um, museum-based courses, and seminars on Buddhist art, like a recent one on the Lotus Sutra, as well as a seminar on the tale of Genji, where we read the entire book from start to finish over the course of a semester. That's a course I've been teaching for almost uh, 20 years. I also teach the tale of Genji in Harvard's general humanities curriculum in uh, a year-long course for about 90 freshmen on essential works in literature and philosophy. The students there only have one or two weeks with Genji, and um, depending on which semester I teach it, Murasaki Shikibu might appear alongside Homer, Aristotle, and Shakespeare, as well as Frederick Douglass, Jane Austen, and Virginia Woolf. Um, But it's been really great for me to read Genji in the context of those other books. So those are some of the things that I teach. And as you know, my research interests in recent years have been intensely focused on the tale of Genji from literary and art historical perspectives. But my first book, Tosa Mitsunobu and the Small Scroll in Medieval Japan focused on medieval narrative hand scrolls and issues related to visual storytelling. And uh, I put forward a methodology for analyzing text and images that runs throughout all my work, one that tries to prioritize holistic analyses grounded in um, historical archival research. Wow, this is so great. And sets us up perfectly for everything that is hopefully to come um, in the next few minutes, talking about um, the tale of Genji, a visual companion, first of all, which um, discusses, in fact, one particular album of Genji paintings. And this album is today in the collection of the Harvard Art Museum, which I would imagine um, you have great access to, and indeed, you 
thank everybody at the museum as well for providing that access to um, yourself as well as your students and other researchers, making it really accessible, which you do through this book as well. So this book um, is beautifully illustrated with um, each chapter and each um, album leaf illustrated in beautifully colored um, illustrations and then with um, elaborations on each of the chapters. So it's a really beautiful um, object itself. And um, as I said, it um, is a comprehensive study of Genji paintings. And in fact, the earliest complete album of Genji paintings and calligraphy so dated to 1510. And I'd be curious to learn how you first came across the album um, and then sort of started your research on it. Yes. Oh, thank you very much for your kind words about the book. One of my goals was to do the album justice and to have readers get a sense of what it's like to actually be in proximity to the album itself and to create almost like a facsimile so that you could hold the album in your hands like a medieval reader would have done, um, enjoying both the text and the images um, at, as a sort of actual approximation of that original reading experience. Um, so the album is actually something that's been in my life since I was a graduate student. I started researching the album when I was uh, working on my dissertation, which was on the um, small scrolls of the artist Tosami Tsunobu. He is, of course, the artist of the album. He produced all of the 54 painting leaves in the album. And I began that work in the 1990s. The album, though, um, really its importance first came to be known to the world through the work of the professor Chino Kaudi, late, the late professor Chino Kaudi, who taught at Gakushin University. She, along with Ikeda Shinobu and Kame Wakana, published a special uh, edition, a special volume of the Japanese art history journal Koka on the album, which for the first time reproduced all of its 108 leaves, so the 54 paintings and the 54 calligraphy leaves in the album. And each of those three scholars provided really important contextual essays about the work. And um, Professor Chino, uh, she was my dissertation advisee when I did my research in Japan. She included me along with a whole team of uh, a range of different scholars, junior to senior, in that project. So um, a lot of us then got to write short excerpts and explanations about the individual chapters in the album. And she was really the first to recognize the album's importance as a Muromachi, Muromachi object. Before then, I think a lot of Tosa school Genji albums had been kind of dismissed as being pretty uninteresting. There are many of them from the Edo period onward. Uh, but what Professor Chino noticed was that this was really an authentic Muromachi work. And she and other scholars had been in the process of really reevaluating the artistic practice of Tosa Mitsunobu. And so this became an integral um, object in telling that story. So uh, I'll just give another little exciting moment of kind of discovery about this album. And that was so after the journal had been published and that special edition on the album had been published. We learned a lot about the album. The uh, calligraphy scholar Kasashima Tadayuki, who's now at the Idemitsu Museum, he was, uh, he was able to identify um, most of the, um, the six calligraphers, the men who wrote the texts for the album, 
by pure stylistic analysis, which was amazing. And then after the um, the journal was published, I went back to um, to Princeton, where I was finishing my dissertation. And because of Kasashima's research, we all knew that one of those calligraphers was Sanjonishi Sanetaka, this incredibly important historical figure who worked closely with the artist Tosa Mitsunobu. And I recount their collaborative relationship in, uh, in my book on Mitsunobu. He uh, worked on over 12 projects with this artist. And so knowing that he was one of the calligraphers, I could then turn to his diary, his incredible diary, a 60-year-long diary, uh, and try to discover if there was some reference to this particular album project. And sure enough, um, one night I decided to, to take a look and within a couple of hours had determined that he gave a kind of blow-by-blow -blow account of the production of this album. And that was astounding and really exciting to see um, because he named um, some of the calligraphers that Kasashima Tadaiki had identified, but he also provided a whole wealth of details about the patron. And so for the first time, we were able to then determine that a Genji album <clears throat> had been commissioned by a young warrior, essentially. And that was important because previously, I think a lot of these Tosa Genji albums, it had been assumed that they were made for members of the court and aristocracy purely because of the subject matter of the tale of Genji, which is rooted in that world. So now with this uh, very clear evidence that it had been commissioned by someone outside of the capital and someone actually from the warrior class, this kind of opened up a whole new area of research for thinking about the reception of the tale of Genji in these different classes in the pre-modern pre period. Wow, this is great, Melissa. Thank you. I think you're being very generous with um, referencing other scholars um, who have worked on the topic as well. Well, actually, the tale of Genji, there has been so much scholarship on it um, that sometimes the process is, I have an idea, and now let me see who said it before. And you have to kind of go back and try to um, give credit to people who've had these ideas in the past. Before we delve further into this particular um, visual interpretation of the tale of Genji, I thought we could first sort of set the scene, so to speak, for our listeners and talk about the tale um, itself in a bit more detail. The tale of Genji was authored in the first half of the 11th century by a woman, Murasaki Shikibu. Murasaki was a court lady at the Heian court of Japan. Now, I'm really curious to understand what the position of women at the Heian court was which allowed their writings and not that of men to become canonical as indeed the tale of Ken Genji did and then also um, maybe more generally what the historical context was that generated this enormous and complex work. Uh, thank you that's a, um, that's a big topic. Um, so uh, in terms of your question about how uh, women a woman came to author what's considered Japan's most celebrated work of fiction one of the important things to keep in mind is that at the time that Murasaki Shikibu wrote the tale of Genji, the monogatari or the, the tale as, as a genre was disparaged. And so this was something that was considered to be a work appropriate for women's writing. It was written in kana, the kana syllabary, so not the Sinitic logographs of 
the texts that would have been written in history and official documents and so forth. And therefore, she was kind of able to fly under the radar, so to speak, and to write a tale that used all of the tropes and conventions of, of romance tales, but to, at the same time, assert her own political messages and to show what was possible in the tale genre in terms of its allusions to every genre, other genre of literature and writing, from uh, those done in Japanese to classical Chinese literature and philosophy and history. Um, so the form itself was one that um, she was ascribed as a female author. She had sort of permission structure, um, so to speak, to write in that mode. Um, but it then allowed her to create this incredible work of art for that reason, in which um, she does seem to be attempting to elevate the tale um, as a genre and to say, sort of look at all that it can do. And in terms of it becoming canonical, um, I think one important fact is simply the, the scale of the text. So 1,300 pages in the most recent English translation, 795 waka and hundreds of characters make it like something that had never been done before and, and like nothing that, had, that comes afterward. And for that reason, a lot of the uh, voices of authority in terms of male poets and so forth from the 13th century and even earlier onward recognized the importance of this book and championed it as one that needed to be known by anyone who wanted to practice literature themselves. And, um, and uh, it's stating that it's poetry needed to be known by anyone uh, who wanted themselves to be considered a practitioner of verse. And this seems to have also sort of translated into the visual arts as well with numerous um, visual interpretations of the tale throughout the centuries and indeed all the way to the present day. And but so um, let's talk a bit more about this process of visual adaptations or interpretations. And maybe you could do this by you know coming back to the to the um, the Harvard album. Sure. So um, it's thought that visual representations of the tale of Genji began almost immediately after the work was written. The oldest extant fragments of texts and images of the work that we have is actually from the 12th century, so about roughly a little over 100 years after Murasaki Ishikibu wrote the book. And those survive in, in fragmentary form, as I mentioned. They're about, um, they come from uh, scenes from 20 different chapters. It's thought that originally those scrolls were um, a, a complete copy of, of all the 54 chapters, although the texts are just summaries. They're not the full text of the tale. Those are national treasures in Japan. And there's a, a recent book in English by uh, Reggie Jackson that is devoted to those objects in particular. So those are sort of the benchmark for art historians in terms of Genji images. But what's interesting is that, aside from um, two fragments of one hand scroll from the 13th century, nothing survives until the 1510 album. And so we have roughly 500 years from the time the tale was written until the 16th century album at Harvard, where we're missing Genji paintings. And so that is one sort of giant mystery as to 
what happened in between the 12th century scrolls and the 16th century album, but we can certainly assume that a great, great amount of reification of the visual language of Genji occurred, that we have a kind of fixed Genji iconography pretty early on. There are, um, although not extant paintings, there are texts that describe Genji images that tell us this as well. Wow, okay, so we're sort of starting to delve into um, this album a bit more. Um, and I would love to talk about um, text image relation based on the Harvard album. And so um, you describe this quite beautifully in the book. And so maybe you can give our listeners a little taster of what is in the book um, by describing. Um, how you envisage the production process of this particular album, for example, how it might have unfolded, and who were the agents involved in this process? Which scenes, for example, and which poetry excerpts were chosen to stand for each of the 54 chapters of um, the written tale? Um, and who got to choose anyway? Um, why do, does the album give preference to waka, so to poetry, um, even though the tale itself is primarily composed of prose? And then there are all sorts of other questions, for example, you know, reference um, made to contemporary culture, for example, as seen in the choice of clothing. Um, and when would the artist draw on historical Heian court culture instead? Um, maybe we can do this by looking at um, one or two examples, example chapters and paintings in, in the book. Sure. Um, why don't I start, um, actually, though, with a little just account of what an album is, in case your viewers, um, not viewers, your listeners aren't familiar with the album format, since I've already kind of jumped ahead and explained leaves without actually explaining how they're inserted into an album. Um, so the album today consists of two volumes. It was remounted in 1998, but originally it was probably a single volume of um, paintings consisting of square pieces of paper that are roughly 24 centimeters by 18 centimeters. And these are called shikishi in Japanese. And um, so we have those paintings and they are mounted, they're actually glued side by side then um, with a, a text leaf, which is the exact same dimensions. And in the Harvard album, those text leaves are dyed five different colors, and they're decorated with um, borders of dragons on the top and one of the sides. And so that's an interesting allusion to Chinese paper decoration, and it seems to be deliberately paired with the painting to create this kind of wonderful juxtaposition of what's called wa and kan, or Japanese and Chinese aesthetics um, that were brought together in interesting creative ways in the medieval period. So you have those square pieces of paper um, that are then pasted into an album. And as I mentioned, originally it would have been one album and probably in an accordion style so that you would read one side and then flip it over and read the other side, dividing the, um, the 54 chapters in half. Um, so today it's mounted between two beautiful brocade covers with mountings in gold, uh, but it probably would have been slightly um, more informal mounting originally. Also, uh, what's interesting about the shikishi or these, these square papers that were used for both calligraphy and painting is the flexibility of the format. 
So um, this is the wonderful thing about the unique formats of Japanese painting is that you can take these square sheets and you can put paintings on them and text on them. And you can do this with, with fans as well and then mount them into different formats, hanging scrolls, folding screens, and albums. And it's also thought that the set of paintings of 108 leaves of Genji were at some point mounted onto a pair of folding screens. And this is a research that was done by Ann Rose Kitagawa, who is a former curator at the Harvard Art Museums. And she discerned patterns in the wear of the leaves that could only have been made if they had been folded up onto folding screens and put into storage. Um, so at some point they were mounted on a screen, although in the original diary entries that describe this project, the, the commissioner describes pasting them into a, a soshi or uh, what we can assume is a kind of form of album. So they traveled, um, they, he took them back to his home provinces, and they assumed different forms throughout their history. So it's a very flexible format, and um, the text and the images were made separately. So the images were done, the paintings were done by uh, Tosa Mitsunobu in his painting studio, and the calligraphy papers were executed by uh, six different calligraphers who were each sent these papers by a coordinator. So the album's production context is very well known, and uh, it's clear that the, the patron, whose name was Sue Saburo, who was working probably on behalf of his father as well, whose name was Sue Hiroaki, they were retainers of the Oji family, um, he requested Sanetaka to help him um, coordinate these album leaves. And he also had um, as his assistant a linked verse poet named Gensei, um, linked verse or Benga being one of the most important forms of poetry in the Muromachi period. And so these individuals then um, determined which scenes and which excerpts from the text to select, and then um, probably sent them out to the calligraphers with, with instructions about which excerpts to use. And the six different men who were involved in the project each represented a different line of, of calligraphy school, which would have been um, known by um, the patron just by looking at the style, probably would have registered as a different house style, um, but also added to the wonderful um, diversity of visual diversity of the album. You have six different calligraphers and five different colors of paper done in a very regimented order. Um, but because there's in a different number of calligraphers and painted leaves, then you have this wonderful kind of rainbow effect where, where very rarely do you see the same calligraphy done on the same color of paper. Um, and so there's a really wonderful kind of visual effect of this amalgamation of text and image coming together. So one interesting question, and we still don't know the answer to is, to what extent did Mitsunobu, the artist, respond to the textual excerpt? Was he given that in advance? Was he thinking about it? Was he just assigned a specific scene? Um, because we do know, for example, that in the medieval period, there were Genji menus for patrons to use in their selection of scenes for albums and other painting projects. So uh, we actually don't know to what extent that the depth of that coordination and how much was known ahead of time by, by the artist. I would assume that the patron, though, had a lot of say in which scenes were selected. We know that from 
later well-documented examples of painting production, of Genji production in particular. Um, but uh, one of the things that I wanted to do in the book and that I think is most rewarding interpretively is to sort of just look at what we have. So we do have this juxtaposition of text and image and what kind of interesting associations does it produce regardless of what the intention was. So um, some of the scenes are very iconic. You see, you see these paintings done again and again. The compositions are fairly reified. Um, and yet when you put them with a different text, they can elicit all sorts of reactions on the part of the reader and viewer. So that makes the album really come alive to every different person who reads it and who has a different understanding of the tale of Genji. Wow, this was so such a beautiful answer and really comprehensive and raises so many issues as well. Um, I'd like to um, continue, sort of ask a follow-up question um, because, you know, you talk about the juxtaposition or indeed um, um, interplay between uh, the, the, the painting on the left-hand side and the calligraphy on the right-hand side. And there are certain qualities to Mitsunobu's um, painting and brushwork in particular that seem to echo the calligraphy in a way. Could you talk a bit more about the particularities of, of his painting style, the brushwork, and as well as the use of, of, of pigments um, that, that make his work in this album uh, distinct? Uh, yeah, so I think I, I can't be 100% certain that Mitsunobu actually re was responding in his painting to the alignment of the calligraphy. Um, I think in some cases the calligraphers might have even been given directions about how to um, compose their lines of text on the page um, because there were in fact manuals for that as well. Um, but in a lot of cases they're probably just a happy accident in terms of how well the image seems calibrated to the text. In terms of Mitsunobu's style, so um, he was someone who was working in an age of uh, efflorescence of Chinese ink painting. And although he's working in a mode of very thick mineral pigments and gold, which is associated with Japanese style painting, he was an artist who, especially in his other works, was very much interested in integrating Chinese ink painting styles into his work. So you see this especially in his hand scroll paintings where he has this characteristic very jagged line for the outline of rocks, for example, a very um, transparent approach to the application of blue for the sea and the sky. Um, that really is not what we tend to associate with very thickly covered jewel-like images of the Tosa school. In the Genji album, um, that's less apparent, although it like, kind of sneaks in here and there in some of the rocks and trees, but also in the kind of roughness. And um, he has seems to be okay with transparency um, in certain places. There's some damage as well that makes it hard to determine if that was intentional. Um, but his Genji paintings look very different from everything we see later in the 17th century and Edo period albums of Genji. They're just earthier. Um, they're softer, they're rougher, um, especially the faces of non-aristocrats, so the ones that aren't um, supposed to be showing a powdered white face. Those tend to be, um, they show the lines underneath coming through, and he seems to be kind of fine with that in a way that, to me, uh, is very endearing. It makes these uh, images much more approachable than some of the others, although um, 
uh, the other ones, the later Genji album leaves have, have their own charms. Now, talking about charm and approachability, um, let's uh, continue to sort of discuss text and image relation. Um, and I would like to talk about um, how the written tale of Genji is indeed famed for its astonishingly modern psychological complexity with um, theory of mind, subjectivity, and interiority. And these are um, some of the reasons why it's considered the first novel um, putting other Eurocentric views of the birth of the modern novel um, um, in the modern era really in its place. <laughs> um, but this, um, the, the complexity, um, psychological complexity, and um, the narrative techniques, so stream of consciousness are used and free and direct discourse as well, um, make the text uh, so so unique and, and modern um, in, in many ways. Yet in the, in the paintings, uh, the faces are not individualized and they're fairly generic. Um, so there seems to be a, a stark uh, sort of contrast or discrepancy between word, which is highly subjective and individualized and psychologically charged and, and complex, and the images that are um, not individualized and, and generic, at least when it comes to the faces. And yet we, or at least the informed viewer, um, is able to identify all the different characters and their individual traits. Um, and so I would like you to talk about how this is achieved. Thank you. Yes, so the, the album uh, is, of course, not um, responding to the entire tale of Genji. It's uh, about sort of these excerpts. Um, and so it doesn't have that same sort of breadth of the textual content that you would have in longer hand scrolls, for example, like the original, uh, not the original, but the earliest extant scrolls from the 12th century, I think those come closer in terms of being able to um, present more text and uh, to have images then that respond to the written complexity of the tale. Um, so those actually kind of convey some of the linguistic features of the tale of Genji in image, in some ways better than the later album leads do, which are responding to an excerpt, but also are not meant to be, are meant to be kind of supplements to a reader, as you said, an informed reader who knows these characters very well. But there are a couple of things that, um, that um, I could say in response to your question in that, first of all, we tend to use these terms that we're comfortable with in terms of describing interiority that are that are uh, derived from our encounter with the modern novel. But um, and they certainly work in many ways in describing what happens when you read the tale of Genji in terms of the sense of really being in a character's mind and in several characters' mind at the same time, and characters who are thinking and projecting. Um, onto the thoughts of other characters, which is something that has always been remarked upon as being astounding for a work of this age. And so there is this kind of almost dangerous familiarity that we can have in reading the tale of Genji, um, because in fact, as, as other as scholars have pointed out, uh, most importantly, Amanda Meyer Stinchcomb and more recently Keith Vincent and uh, Tomiko Yoda, that um, the tale of Genji has this alterity in its writing, in its linguistic forms that have to be accounted for. Um, so 
things that are just inherent in classical Japanese read as sort of modern interiority when in fact there's something much more complex going on. Um, and so in that way, I think the images can really um, help as a corrective to that tendency to want to see the work purely in terms that uh, we are familiar with. So to your point, you know, why is it that all of the faces seem to look the same? Well, in some ways, um, that there are many different reasons for that. Um, by the time we get to the 16th century, there was a need for a very solid kind of a robust kind of um, visual language of Genji that would be highly legible. And this resulted in this astoundingly kind of consistent representational style of courtly painting. So that was important in terms of communication abilities and of um, communicating such a long story and all of its different uh, content and chapters to viewers. Um, the ability of that common visual language enabled readers to kind of immediately understand what a painting was signifying because of the selection of certain motifs, for example. Um, another important thing is that um, these paintings necessitate a viewer who's going to read into them. And so in some ways, like the text, it's really asking for a kind of cognitive work that has to be done on the part of the viewer. So the paintings, to get the most out of them, you have to project all sorts of things into them uh, in terms of reading beyond the moment that's being depicted. So I'm talking about a single leaf of, of an album right now, of an album painting. To really understand that image and to, to, to read it in a kind of rewarding way, you want to think back to the moments that happened before that scene and forward in, in the novel to moments that happened after that scene in order to fully understand what's going on in the image. So it re requires um, a kind of uh, you know, knowledge of the story to fill out what's not shown in the image. And then also the painting should be understood as one that is not naturalistic. And this is something that can be applied to the text as well. So although the tale of Genji, and this is the reason it's probably you know, lasted until this day as a beloved novel, although it is full of this kind of realistic style description, it's important to keep in mind that almost every place, every natural motif, every place name, every setting that's described is also symbolic. And this is really driven home when you look at the paintings because um, the paintings, as I mentioned in the book, many of them function as kind of word motifs that are used, that have a kind of semantic value. They're, they're images that have semantic value. And that's all, a lot of times that can be attributed to the fact that this is a work of art that comes out of a culture of poetry and a culture of poetic ga gatherings. So as I mentioned, you know, the creators of this album, one of the most integral figures was a Renga poet. And so there are traces of Renga imagery throughout the album in these motifs that could have been seen and spoken as words that would, you would use to compose a, a Renga verse. And so the images are part of this um, culture of the medieval period in which you had really, and not just Renga, but you had a kind of semantic web that was overlaying society with Renga production, but also Waka poetry production as well, that 
kind of um, shaped the way people viewed artistic production. And so although the images might seem simple, there is this important integration with the poetic word and, and often the prose as well that makes them more complex. Wow, and this leads me to to wonder what you think. How much of that um, knowledge um, is is lost today, or indeed, do you believe that we are still today able to uh, decode all of this incredibly, you know, the incredible complexity that you just described in its entirety today? It's really hard to read it that way. <laughs> um, so much work has been done in and by Japanese scholars writing in Japanese about each individual chapter that helped. Um, and so I think um, you know, it'd be wonderful to have in English a full explication of um, every single chapter of the Tale of Genji um, as a kind of series that would be interesting to help readers, I think, really understand the depth of um, symbolism and, and illusions that occur um, on the sentence level, actually. Well, I think credit due where credit's due. Um, you do this really beautifully for um, for for this particular album, and and you do um, exactly what you've just described, which is reading into the painting both what happened before and after, um, and then describing what is you know happening which scene was chosen from the chapter for this particular um painting and so you you do that really quite beautifully and it is a great help to any reader um who's trying to understand a bit better the tale itself as well as visual um interpretations of it um now should we talk about one of the examples yes i would love to look at chapter four you know that's one of my favorites in terms of um, looking ahead as to what happens in, in subsequent scenes from the one being depicted. So this is a painting um, that is paired with one single poem, which um, often happens in the album. And it's a poem that is spoken by Genji. And I can go ahead and just read the English translation, which is by Edmund Cranston. That's in the book. And um, well, I, sh I should set the stage first, and that is uh, Genji has uh, been courting Yugao, this woman. He, he first heard about her in chapter two as this lost lover of Tono Chujo, his brother-in-law and rival and friend. So Tono Chujo had this lover named Yugao, and they had a daughter together. But this lover has um, has uh, sort of run away, sort of is in hiding because she's been um, sort of threatened by Tono Chujo's official wife. So Genji comes upon this woman as he's visiting his old nursemaid, and he begins seeing her. And in the scene in the painting, he is at her residence, which is very far from uh, what he's used to at, at the palace in the imperial court. And this is a famous scene in which he hears all of these sounds from a neighborhood that he's not used to being in because the residences are sort of cheek by jowl, so close together that he can hear people waking up in the morning and so forth. And uh, the scene is so full of evocative sound imagery. And the painting really captures that by showing, for example, um, 
two, two women in the upper right corner who are pounding cloth, um, the word for which is kimutha, and that is itself an important um, poetic word. And so that's a kind of interesting visual image that um, is directly related to poetry composition. And then Genji also hears the sound of a religious pilgrim. And in the painting, this is actually one case, which is it's quite an unusual rendition of the scene. It has that pilgrim actually kneeling in the lower left corner, and he um, has his hands clasped together in prayer. He's going to be on his way to a pilgrimage, and he's facing a shelf with these, um, these white uh, paper streamers called gohe. And um, Genji hears him um, reciting, uh, sort of praying, and then Genji recites this poem to Yugao. And he's going to, this evening, he's going to whisk her away to this deserted mansion where, unfortunately, she will meet her end at the hands of a, a frightening phantom. Um, most people think it's Lady Rokujo, uh, her spirit. But in any case, so Genji hears these sounds and he composes this poem to Yugao. And he says about the man who's, who's praying, he says, This lay devotee practices the way. Oh, let it be our guide. Even in the lives to come, do not betray our deep vow. Um, so it's, you know, can be taken as Genji sort of making the most of the situation, hearing this um, religious pilgrim and then composing a poem that's all about his kind of uh, worldly love for Yugao as a way to um, woo her. Um, on the other hand, when you look at this poem, which is on the leaf next to the painting, juxtaposed with the imagery in the painting, um, it has interesting reverberations. So you start to think about actually the, the words in the poem, the religious meaning of the poem, um, not just the romantic scenario, but how both can be sort of overlaid um, with spiritual meaning. And that poem is important because at the time that the album was created in the 16th century, it was actually spoken in a no play about the character Yugao. And as uh, your listeners probably know, no plays were very much uh, integrated with um, Buddhist philosophy. So it seems to me that Tsunobu was sort of inserting this uh, image of the pilgrim to do that kind of work, to bring out these kind of nuances of Yugao's character. But what was especially striking um, to me in analyzing this painting was that Genji is shown in a robe, uh, a red robe, which has all sorts of beautiful gold patterns on it. But um, that's a color that he never wears again in the entire album. So he appears a lot in this album before uh, chapter 41 when he leaves the story, but um, never is he shown in a red robe. And if you read forward in, in the chapter, in chapter four, what you'll find is that after Yugao dies and her body is uh, disposed of or taken to a temple for cremation by Genji's fixer, Koremitsu, uh, Genji goes to visit her corpse and he actually recounts, the, the chapter recounts a description of him um, looking at the corpse, which has been wrapped in this red robe that we see in the painting, in the album. So uh, after she died, you know, Koremitsu did what he could. He wrapped the body. She had been wearing the robe. 
she he kept the body in the robe and then wrapped her up in the mat they had been sleeping on. But in this remarkable passage, so Genji is described visiting her, you know, her, her dead body and commenting on the robe. So in that way, it, with that knowledge of what happens later in the chapter, you can look at this painting very differently. All of a sudden, Genji wearing the robe, looking at Yuga, who has her back to the viewer in the painting. It seems like a foreshadowing of this you know, ominous death that's about to come. I think, and you've mentioned this a bit now in your discussion of this one particular painting, I think um, this sort of helping the viewer to understand better uh, the before and after and placing um, this scene within um, the chapters as such is also helped um, by the format of the album, which is, um, of course, you know, which allows for both an intimate as well as um, an embodied viewing in which you sort of turn the pages as you as you go along through the chapter. You've mentioned this before as well, but I just want to come back to it maybe. And then also uh, particular stylistic features, such as the blowing of roofs, um, as well as the clouds. And I was wondering whether you could talk about this a bit more because it's particular to this album, but it also um, is repeated in many ways, not repeated, not copied, of course, but sort of echoed in other um, interpret visual interpretations of the tale. Uh, yes, uh, thank you. So these conventions of narrative painting are just remarkably consistent, and you'll see them in Genji paintings into the 20th century, and they um, involve, like you mentioned, this feature of the so-called blown-off roof, in which you can peer down into domestic settings, interior settings, and see the characters interacting. One of the thing that's one of the things that's interesting about the that technique is that you know, it's a later term that art historians applied to the technique. Uh, so it actually presupposes a roof. Um, but if you think about it, sort of narrative painting, especially in its very earliest formation, probably done by, you know, readers of, of tales early on who are building these images just based on what they're reading, it probably started with the characters themselves and the kind of interpersonal um, relationship between figures and paintings and then the settings maybe grew up around them in a way so um you know the fact that it doesn't have a roof it maybe is sort of um it's strange that we use that term in some ways because the most important things for these images are actually the work of the the characters and their interpersonal goings on in in the settings um and so but the lack of that uh rooftop does kind of signal to the viewer that you're in a kind of different pictorial space than you might be familiar with. So I think that also uh, lets them know that this is a tradition where you, you should sort of question your assumptions about how it should be viewed. And the other aspect of the painting that does that are the gold clouds, um, which are also not meant to be kind of naturalistic. And as I said before, you know, this has been a long process of probably the conventionalization of the gold cloud motif over centuries. Um, and now in the 16th century, they're very opaque. Um, Mitsunobu's cloud have um, sort of uh, rounded outlines and small pieces of gold on the outline as well as opaque gold paint in the middle. But they waft over all different parts of the scene and they perform different functions. So in one sense, they create spatial cell. So I mentioned in that chapter four painting, you have 
this image of two women pounding cloth in the upper right, they are set off between gold cloud that allows us to think of them at, even in the small space of this rectangle um, as somewhat distant from Genji perhaps. They can perform, um, the gold clouds can then sort of elide space. It can be farther than an actual spatial distance would actually be um, in the image. They also function rhetorically to emphasize certain figures in the paintings. And so you'll often in this album see the gold cloud just hovering right over Genji's head, um, sort of letting the viewers know that he is the actual protagonist of the scene. That happens quite a bit. They function that way as pointers. And this is something that happens in hand scrolls and narrative painting um, all throughout Japanese art history. So these conventions are ones that viewers learn to read. Um, one thing, you know, just to jump ahead to the exhibition, um, the designers at the Metropolitan Museum of Art did a wonderful job of um, painting the wall of the entrance to the museum black and then applying actual gold leaf vinyl clouds on the wall to sort of let the museum goers know that when they open these doors and enter into these rooms, they'll be entering into this kind of special space, not naturalistic. This is a, a magical sort of fictional world of the tale. And in many ways, the Genji paintings, on, whether they be on screens or, or albums or fans, those gold clouds are sort of telling you as well um, that this is a kind of alternative you know, liminal space that you're entering into. No, I think that's a really, really good point because, um, well, because, it, you know, these these pages are so beautifully uh, constructed in a way, I think, or designed. Um, and you talked about how, how you wanted to make this a, you know, um, as close as possible sort of reading experience whilst at the same time um, helping anybody, you know, whether they're able to, to read Japanese or not, um, uh, to, to sort of uh, understand the calligraphy better. So I think that's a really good one. Um, shall we sort of record this properly again? Or do you want me to just, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I'll take a short um, sort of moment um, and then... Um, start again um so there's so many different aspects that we've spoken about now and you've uh, sort of already um started introducing or talking about the exhibition which we'll come on to in the next part of the interview but before we go on to do that is there anything else that you would like to cover in this interview that we haven't mentioned and um a little note to the reader for example about this beautifully produced and magnificent uh, Tale of Genji of the Harvard album. Okay, um, thank you. So if I could say one last thing about the book, it would be um, just a thanks to my editor, Michelle Comey, and the production uh, members of the production team at, at Princeton University Press. They um, allowed me to put Japanese in my book, which isn't always the case, and which let me put the... Um, the transcription in Japanese of every calligraphic sheet in the album right below it, uh, alongside a romanization of the transcription, and then the full English translation beneath the painting. And this was um, something that I really wanted to do so that the book would speak to many different types of readers. So those who are just starting out learning Japanese, those um, who are those who are more advanced in their Japanese language training who would like to, for example, learn how to read the calligraphy leaves um, on their own. 
they can do that um, by looking down at the passage and seeing, and its transcription, seeing um, how it was done and how the abbreviated characters um, are made. Um, but then also that the book would allow for readers who have no background in Japanese language and can appreciate the painting alongside the wonderful translations of Edwin Cranston and then uh, Dennis Washburn, whose prose translation I used. So I'm, I'm grateful to them, and, and I hope um, that the book will allow readers to um, come up with their own interpretations of the tale of Genji. I should mention that in addition to the description of the paintings, the book is also, uh, to the extent that the, these sort of individual scenes from one from each chapter allowed me to do so an account of how I read the tale of Genji, how I've taught it for 20 years in terms of my own interpretation of the story. And in addition to the book, um, there's also um, the album fully reproduced, fully illustrated on the website of the Harvard Art Museum. So readers can go to that site and zoom in on the pictures and come up with their own interpretations of the story and the pictures as well. That's so great. Thank you so much, Melissa, for your time today and for talking to me about The Tale of Genji, a visual companion published in 2018 by Princeton University Press. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. <laughs>